September 7th, 2000, the MTV Music Awards. Anybody remember this? Anybody old enough? Date your, it's the 9 a.m. You're all at the 9 a.m. Sean Fanning, the co-founder of Napster, is on stage wearing a Metallica t-shirt. When asked by whoever that celebrity I can't remember the name of, what's his name? Mm, that's right. I was still coming out of homeschool at that point. Um, <laughs> Carson Daly. When asked about his t-shirt, his answer was, quote, a friend of mine shared it with me. Now, backstory. A few months before, Metallica is in the studio working on a song called I Disappear for the Mission Impossible soundtrack. One day, they wake up, and the song is on radio stations all across the country. Only thing is, it's not done yet. It's not even mixed. Somebody stole it. Now, they trace the theft back to the then-unheard-of fledgling file-sharing program called Napster, where it turns out Metallica's entire catalog is available for free to download. And thus begins one of the most infamous street fights in music history. Metallica, it turns out both are from the San Francisco Bay Area. Metallica goes on to file a lawsuit against Napster in the U.S. District Court of California for copyright infringement and racketeering to the tune of $10 million, which is what they calculated they lost. They win in the U.S. District Court of Northern California. It's a crystal clear legal case, but they lose in the court of public opinion. Napster's basic case was they're rich. Filthy rich, we can't afford to buy that kind of music. We'll pay for it later or whatever. Who cares if we just skim a little bit off the top? Metallica's comeback was very simple. It doesn't matter if you steal from the rich or the poor. Stealing is stealing. It's illegal and it's wrong. Now, ethically, is this a gray area? No. No ethicists were involved. There was no debate. There was no controversy at that level. Napster was not Robin Hood. In fact... Stealing is a taboo across every single culture that sociologists have ever studied. It is a moral baseline, ethics 101, and it was stealing. Anybody remember a few years later the anti-piracy plugs at the beginning of movies? Remember this? It was so annoying when piracy became a thing. It's like, you wouldn't steal a car, you wouldn't steal a handbag, you wouldn't steal a TV. It's like a guy walking out of an apartment with a TV. You wouldn't steal the DVD, and they go in, and the guy like, puts the DVD in. Remember? Piracy. It's all shaky, like, it's a crime. Remember that? And it was only like a few years ago, but it looked like it was made in 1991. It was classic. Um, legally and ethically, piracy of music or film, the, the moral right or wrong was crystal clear. It was not a gray area. And yet, most people moved the moral line to make piracy socially acceptable. Those of you in your 20s, you digital natives, like, you just can't remember a pre-Spotify or Apple Music world, or Tidal, if you're really a snob, like some of us music lovers. But I can. I was 20 in 2000. I played in indie bands all through high school and college in my early 20s. Um, they weren't very good, but I did it a lot. And honestly, after Jesus, music was my life. And I remember I was working at this coffee shop. Minimum wage at the time was $6.50 an hour. And a CD, that, that was short for compact disc, all of you under 25, um, it was 
it was about, at Music Millennium, it was 18-ish dollars, sometimes more, sometimes a little bit less. If you wanted to like sell out and go to Target, it was more like 12 to 14 dollars. But if you were cool, you went to Music Millennium on Burnside or whatever. And think about it, that was two to three hours of work for one record. And if you're a music lover, played in a band or not, just if you love music, that's a lot of money. So all of my little indie rock friends would offer me a burned CD. So I'm really dating myself right now. And like you'd have this whole Rolodex of like CDs that were like silver with Sharpie on there. Like Sharpie's like just lost market share over the last 10 years like crazy now that we don't do this anymore. And I remember when they would offer me, and it was always like 18 bucks was one thing if it was like rush of blood to the head. You're like, that's worth it. But if it's like some little band nobody's ever heard of called Sigaras from somewhere in Northern Europe or whatever, like who's that band again? You're not really sure if you wanna drop three hours of work on that record. And so your friends would offer you this burn CD or a download link or whatever. And the temptation I just remember was so strong. I'm not gonna lie, there were times I said yes. I just, I have to admit that in front of you. Your pastor used to have a few burned CDs. I'm so sorry. I never burned in them for anybody else. I just, passive sin, not active sin, all right? (laughs) But I have this vivid memory. I remember coming to the spot where I thought, you know, actually, this is wrong. This is stealing. This is illegal, and even though everybody's doing it, it's wrong. And so I made this decision that I was a little bit hit or miss on my implementation of it, but to no longer accept burned CDs. And now, granted, I was quite self-righteous at the time, but um, not that I'm not anymore. Um, But I remember when I would turn down an offer for a CD, and I'm sure I was less than humble about it or something, but I remember it would just spark ire in people. People would get angry at me. How dare you judge me for, even if all I said was no thank you, or a little line about I don't do burn CDs or I don't steal or whatever I would have said, you know. (laughs) Um, Like people would get so angry with me because listen, we now lived in a moral system where judging your friends for stealing was seen as evil, and stealing was seen as just fine. Right and wrong had been redefined along the lines of popular opinion, or really, more honestly, along the lines of popular desire in just a few years. Now, I start with that because it's non-emotional. Most of us, that's not an emotional trigger for you to think about your relationship to illegal music in your past or whatever. But that is a great example of what the writers of the New Testament call the world. On that note, John chapter 15, if your Bible is still open. My community is a few weeks behind in our practice due to the holidays, and so we just finished up the scripture memory practice, which was one of the ways that we fight the devil, if you remember that. Just like Jesus, we stand in the truth of scripture in our mind and in our memory. So we decided as a community to all memorize John 15, the first half of it, together, which is like one of my desert island favorite passages, like if you could only take one passage of the Bible with you, John 15, it's like, I think, amazing. And then the next week, you know, we went around the table and we said it, and um, then the next morning I woke up and I read the second half of the chapter, and I started to laugh and I thought nobody would ever put this to memory. John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. 
If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. And the Greek there can also be translated a apprentice or a disciple, it's the word, is not greater than his rabbi. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. And Jesus goes on. That's Jesus on the world. On this, and this idea of the world is developed by Jesus into a major theme in his teaching. One more example. Turn over to John chapter 17. This is one of the most famous passages. If you're new to the New Testament, this is one of the most famous passages in it. It's Jesus' prayer to the Father on, his night, on the night before the cross. It's a gold mine. Just take a look with me at verse, let's start in verse 6. I revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and I have obeyed your word. Now they know everything you have given me comes from you. I gave them the words you gave. They accepted. They know a certainty. Nine, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours. All you have is mine. Glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer. But they are still in the world. Skip down to 13. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. There it is again. For they are not of the world. Same thing, on repeat. Any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They, again, are not of the world. You notice how Jesus is just driving the point home. Even as I am not of it, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Did you notice how many times Jesus used that word, the world, over a dozen times in just two paragraphs? And this major theme in Jesus' teaching does not end with his death, burial, and resurrection, but it's picked up and developed by the writers of the New Testament. Let me just show you one example. Turn over to 1 John chapter 2. We were with Paul the last few weeks. Now let's take a look at John. 1 John chapter 2, it's, uh, there's a table of contents at the beginning of your Bible. If not, it's really close to the end, right before Revelation. 1 John chapter 2, take a look at this, one of the most well-known passages on the world in the New Testament. Verse 15, John writes, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. The two are mutually exclusive. For everything in the world, and notice the threefold here, categories, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and all of its desires pass away, or can be translated, are passing away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. 
We'll come back in a little bit to John's tripart of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. For now, what exactly do Jesus and John and the writers of the New Testament mean by this concept of the world? Well, the word, word is cosmos in Greek, where we get the English word cosmos. That's what you go to seminary for, right there. And same as the word sarkos, or flesh, if you were here a few weeks ago, it has more than one meaning in the New Testament. So think of the English word ball. Ball can mean a round object that you play a game with, or a dance party where you dress up in formal attire, or to have a good time, as in have a ball. Same word, more than one meaning. In the same way, the word cosmos has at least three meanings in the New Testament. One, sometimes it just means planet Earth as in Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the cosmos, or the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Other times it means humanity, as in the iconic John 3.16, for God so loved what? the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish or not just die and be done at the end, but instead will live forever in the age to come. Clearly what Jesus has in mind here is humanity as a whole. But what we talk about when we talk about the world, the flesh, and the devil, that historic kind of the three enemies of the soul of church tradition, is something else. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga defines it as a culture, the pattern of beliefs, social forms, dispositions or attitudes, and values that are institutionalized in a people's collective life. Dallas Willard defines it as our cultural and social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus opposed to God. One New Testament lexicographer defines it as the system of practices and standards associated with secular society, with a whole group of people who live in denial of the reality of God. Have a look at this from Patrick Deenan, not a theologian. I think he is a Catholic, but it's not a religious book. He's a professor from Notre Dame on constitutional law. In his book, Why Liberalism Failed, it's the first time I've ever had a political book that we recommended for a theological topic, but it's fantastic. And he writes this about the America of recent memory. In this world, the world that we now live in, gratitude to the past and obligations to the future are replaced by nearly universal pursuit of immediate gratification. Culture, rather than imparting the wisdom and experience of the past so as to cultivate virtues of self-restraint and civility, becomes synonymous with hedonic titillation visceral crudeness and distraction, all oriented toward promoting consumption, appetite, and detachment. As a result, superficially self-maximizing socially, he's way too smart for his own good, socially destructive behaviors begin to dominate society. He's writing about the America that we were born into, but I can't think of a better definition of the New Testament category of the world. In summary, I would define the world or a biblical theology of the world in the New Testament as, quote, a system of ideas, values, practices, and social norms that are institutionalized in a culture organized around the twin sins of one, rebellion against God, and two, the redefinition of good and evil. 
Now, I use that word culture on purpose because much of what our generation calls culture, previous generations, going all the way back to Jesus himself, called the world. And by the twin sins there, I'm referring to, if you've been in our story and kind of the way we read through the library of Scripture, we're referring there to the Garden of Eden. Remember back to the beginning of our fall practice, we did some work around Genesis chapter 3, and Tim Mackey's with us as well, who was quite helpful on it. And the snake's temptation to Eve and to Adam was basically two-part. One, it was to rebel, to seize autonomy. You shall be like God's. You don't need God. He doesn't have your best mind. To seize autonomy from God, to separate from God's presence in our day and age, to secularize yourself. And two, it was to redefine good and evil based on the voice in our head, which in the story is personified as the snake, and the desire in our heart. For Jesus and the writers of the Bible, the world is what happens when Eve's sin spreads through a society and the warping of shalom is normalized, where one rebellion against God, or at least life as if he does not exist, and two, the redefinition of good and evil, based on the voice in our head and our own desire, are now the status quo. I think of the devil's famous line in Paradise Lost by Milton, evil be thou my good. He puts that into the mouth of Satan himself. I can't think of a better way to say it. Or hundreds of years before Milton, the prophet Isaiah said it this way, woe to those. And it's not a, I don't think that's a woe like a, you know, hellfire and brimstone, spittle anger. I think it's a woe like, do you ever see sin in our society and just like you just like you groan. Woe is not an English word. We're all aware of that, right? It's just it's like just a way of woe. It's just this expression. It's like oh is like the positive, you know, like oh, like wow. Woe is the opposite. It's just ah, oh, it's this ache, this grief, this heartache to those who call good evil and evil good. This is the crux of the problem. Another more recent prophet, A.W. Tozer, put it this way, the cause of all our human miseries is a radical moral dislocation. He went on to use the analogy of a sailor and his sextant, and he said as a sailor gets his or her place in the world by the stars, we navigate our place in the world by the north star of God and his vision of good and evil. Without that, we end up lost. Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens, best-selling, and now Homodus, and about the farthest thing from a follower of Jesus, had this insight about the challenge that we face in a secular society as we go forward. Quote, in earlier times, it was God who could define goodness, righteousness, and beauty. Today, these answers lie within us. Our feelings give meaning to our private lives. But also, not only that, our social and political processes. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The customer is always right. The voter knows best. If it feels good, do it. And think for yourself. These are some of the main humanist credos. Theo Hobson, in his book on liberal Christianity, has this syllogism. What was universally condemned is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated is now condemned. And those who refuse to celebrate are now condemned. 
This is what most in our city would call progress. And in some areas it is. For example, in our society's work against systemic racism. But in many more areas, say sexuality or abortion or divorce or greed, this is not progress. This is not a progression but a regression. This is what the New Testament calls the way of the world as opposed to the way of Jesus. Or there's another well-known phrase in the New Testament, in particular in Paul's writings, the wisdom of the world. It's what the world thinks is wise and smart and cunning and clever, but it's the wisdom of the world. It does not have the perspective of God and eternity. But the world is honestly something we just don't really talk about anymore. I'm just old enough to remember old school preachers railing against the world. Like, I grew up in that. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. I grew up in that. Um, C.S. Lewis, in the Screwtape Letters, also on our recommended reading, has the senior demon. If you've not read it, it's just beautiful parody. It's so well written. And he has the senior demon Screwtape write to his apprentice demon, Wormwood, and he says this. Since the enemy... Do we have the quote? Next slide. There we go. Since the enemy's servants... And keep in mind, this is demon to demon. So the enemy here is Jesus. His servants, that's us have been preaching about the world as one of the great standard temptations for 2,000 years, this might seem difficult to do, but fortunately, they have said very little about it for the last few decades. In modern Christian writings, though I see much, indeed more than I like, about mammon, I see few of the old warnings about worldly vanities, the choice of friends, and the value of time. And I love this. All that your patient would probably classify as Puritanism. And may I remark in passing that the value we have given to that word is one of the really solid triumphs of the last 200 years. By it, we rescue annually thousands of humans from temperance, chastity, and sobriety of life. Nobody's been talking about this for decades, says the senior demon. That book, by the way, was published in 1942. 75 years ago. For more than a century, or at least for the last decade or two, little to nothing has been said in the church, at least in our nation, at least the church of my experience, and Christian and I were even dialoguing about this from a different church tradition, his experience as well, about this temptation to the world. And honestly, the temptation is greater now than it's been in centuries. Philip Reif, who you may know, was a sociologist of religion, one of the great minds of the last century, divided Western history into three phases. First culture, second culture, and third culture. Another way to say that is pre-Christian, Christian, or Christianized, and post-Christian. Pre-Christian culture is Rome, or Celtic Britain, or Sub-Saharan Africa before the, go- before the gospel. It's a world of gods and goddesses, of spirituality and superstition, of violent, fear-motivated tribes at war with each other. But then the gospel comes, whether it's to Rome or to Ireland or wherever it is, and there's peace and there's reconciliation and there's healing, and it moves to phase two, or Christian culture. And a better way to say that is Christianized culture. There's no such thing as a Christian nation or a Christian culture. At best, it's a mix of christian e and pagan or later secular ideas. This is Britain in the 19th century. It's America from the Second Great Awakening. It's actually not early America, but it's America from the Second Great Awakening to the 1950s or so. But then it moves into a third phase of post-Christian culture. 
And the key thing to get in Reef's paradigm is that post-Christian culture is not the same thing as pre-Christian culture. It's not like we go back to how it used to be. People are not like, even in our crazy city, I don't know anybody worshiping Zeus or sacrificing their eldest child to a forest spirit. Instead, it's like the West's rebellious teenager moment where we kick against our parents' authority even while we're still living in their house and eating their food. Our fr- it's exactly what it's like right now. Our friend Mark Sayers in Disappearing Church, which again is our recommended read for this module, writes, post-Christianity is not pre-Christianity. Rather, post-Christianity attempts to move beyond Christianity while simultaneously feasting upon its fruit. Post-Christian culture attempts to retain the solace of faith, that kind of nice feeling, whilst gutting it of the costs, commitments, and restraints that the gospel places on the individual will. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for the justice and shalom of the kingdom whilst defending the reign of the individual will. What he's saying is that our society has moved on from its Christian-ish past, in particular in America, but this is the key insight. It still wants to hang on to the parts it's like. So much of the progressive vision is all rooted in Jesus' vision. Equality, human rights, decency, like so much of this is all rooted in Jesus and the revolution that he started, the, the, begin, the, the turning point for history itself. Mark would say that our society wants the kingdom, but without the king. Now, stay with me. This is, this is all going somewhere, I promise. You're like, I don't care about sociology. Just help me figure out life, all right? What Reef and Sayers both point out is that if you are coming from a second culture to a first culture, from Christian to pre-Christian, say from 19th century Britain to Africa as a missionary, then the great danger is that you colonize the culture, Think of our African brothers and sisters dressed up in suits and ties, singing hymns in English written by dead white men. That's the danger, that you bring not only the gospel with you, but your culture with you or even your ethnicity with you. But if, this is the very important, if you are coming from a second culture to a third culture, say you're an immigrant coming from the Sudan or Iraq to England or to America or to Portland, Or say you are a follower of Jesus coming from Bridgetown Church to Portland. The great danger is not that you colonize the culture, but that you are colonized by the culture. Think about it. The great danger for us is not, oh, we need to be really careful or all the Portland indie rock bands might start sounding like Bethel. We don't want to do that to them, right? It's not like we need to be really careful or our coworkers who's an atheist might end up signing his email, Grace and Peace, or something like that. Or like people in our little neighborhood might do the side hug instead of the weird sensual front hug that's normal in our city. Like they might do the kind of socially awkward side hug instead with members of the opposite sex. We want to be really careful that we don't, you know, that's not not going to happen. You don't need to worry about that. Like the odds are one in a million. The danger is that we are assimilated into a culture, much of which, think of our city, much of which is good and beautiful, and true, but much of which is in flat-out rebellion against God and grounded in the redefinition of good and evil itself. I would argue, and feel free to push back, but that the greatest problem in the church in America, if not in the whole West, is the emergence of a DIY faith that is a mix of the way of Jesus and a little bit of the New Testament 
and identity politics on the right or the left, and this political party's view of things, and consumerism, and progressive sect ethics, and radical individualism, and anti-authoritarianism, all of it mixed together. David Tackle, in that book we recommended, it's so good, The Truth About Lies and Lies About the Truth, writes this, an alarming number of Christians are very prone to viewing their faith as largely a volunteer enterprise. They pick and choose which values they wish to adopt from Scripture and which they will adopt from the dominant culture. This synchristic approach to faith is only possible, and this was the line that hit me, because of the unexamined assumption that we are in charge of our doctrine, dogma, and morals rather than God. Much of, it appealed, much of its appeal lies in the ability to blend in with the surrounding culture, minimize our discomfort, and still hold to the illusion of being Christian-like in one's behavior. I know that's heavy, but honestly, this is not a new problem. Read the Old Testament. January's coming up. We have a little read through the Bible in a year thing. If you want the little chart, we'll have that for you in a few weeks. Just pay attention. By the time you get to about March, right, which is like some tough sledding there in the Old Testament, but you will realize, okay, it's the same, like Tim Mackey said this to me, we were hanging out recently, and he said, you know, really the Bible is only a few stories that just get told over and over and over and over. And he's one of the most brilliant Bible scholars I know. And I was like, you're kind of right. Like, it's really just, it's like this spiral diameter. It's like, it's just this, it's the same half a dozen stories on repeat. And one of the stories that you just come up against over and over and over and over is the age-old temptation of the people of God is syncretism. It's not Jesus or, it's Jesus and. And so every generation of followers of Jesus, and every follower of Jesus herself or himself, has to constantly ask the question, in what ways have we been colonized? Or if you prefer the word, assimilated. Where have we brought, bought into the rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil? Where have we drowned out the voice of the Spirit with the voice of the world in order to assuage our own guilt and live how we please? But this is tricky. Remember our working theory for this practice is that the devil's primary stratagem, his like go-to mode to drive your soul and our society into ruin is deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. And that's what's tricky. Deceptive ideas get as far as they do in our mind and in our life because they appeal to our flesh, which we define as our disordered desires. We want them to be true. There are certain ideas out there right now that I know are not true, but man, there's a part of me not the deepest part of me, but sometimes the strongest part of me, that wants them to be true. This is why we go to great lengths to avoid guilt. Human beings are masters of self-deception and self-justification. If you don't believe me, follow the example of some here and have children. I'm just telling you, no humanist survives parenting. That's all I'm saying, right? Children have a, I, like, have a PhD in manipulation by about age two or three. And I have three wonderful children, but literally by two or three, when you call them on something, it's like it's not in question, like, don't hit your brother in the face. It's not like, it's not, it's not a moral gray area. Don't lie. It is stunning how early, how, A, how smart they are, and how quick they come up with a blame shift, play the, all of a sudden, like, they do something wrong and they're the victim. That happens 
all the time in our house, or how like they find some weird, irrational, illogical excuse, and it really, I know I did this, but it was somebody, and it's like you're literally watching Genesis chapter 3, the woman that you gave me, gave me some, and I ate it, you know? It's like, like as far back as freaking Adam, right? Adam and Eve live on, and every little boy, every little girl, every grown man, every grown woman. We are, human beings are masters of self-deception and of self-justification. This is why trust your feelings, Luke, is such bad advice. I mean, it's great for Obi-Wan to say that to Luke with the Death Star, but it's less helpful as a way to navigate life as a whole. And then this human bent in all of us, like, is then normalized in our, this is, this is tricky, it's then normalized in our sinful society, where the New Testament called the world, which is like an echo chamber of our flesh, where we are all telling each other what we want to hear in this self-validating feedback loop, right? I've been on this, like, last couple of years, I've just really been wrestling, I don't know if I should even say this, but with Jesus and money, and his teachings around money, and it's, it's not a crystal clear conversation for me because wealth is so relative and it's so based on your history. And so I've just been wrestling with like, as a, just pastor thing aside, as an apprentice of Jesus, what is my relationship to money? And so I've started going around and asking people that I look up to and respect. And I started to realize that every single person I asked just told me their socioeconomic status. And I could predict with 99.9% accuracy what so-and-so would say based on how much money they make or where they're at in the socioeconomic educational matrix or whatever. And I'm not saying that to slam them. We're all a little bit confused on some of this. My point is it becomes like you kind of say what you want to hear. You know what I mean? It's like when you're with some, like my wife and I do this all the time. And I'm like, should we have dessert? And what I really mean is, I really, she does this more than I do it. But what I really mean (laughs) is, will you say yes so that I don't feel guilty doing something I know that I shouldn't do? (laughs) Like, that's actually, you married couples, you know what I'm talking about? Some of you single, like, you need to get a spouse or at least a serious boyfriend or girlfriend just so you can eat more sugar and guilt-free, you know? Because it's like, well, if she says it's okay to do, well, then I just want to serve my wife, you know? I just want her to not be alone or whatever. My point is, that's how we laugh, but that's human society. It's this echo chamber. It's this self-validating feedback loop. And in the end, these deceptive ideas from the devil himself, all the way back to the garden, that play to this disordered desires, this heart of our, part of our heart that is bent, that is then just normalized. It's just, well, isn't that what everybody does in our society or the world? In the end, it's death, not life. As Paul writes in that famous line, the wages of sin is what? Death. Notice, again, this is not hellfire and brimstone. The wages of sin, not the wages for sin. Sin is the one who pays you back, not God. It's what we read last week in Galatians. Those who sow to the flesh from the flesh reap destruction, not from God. God doesn't need to do anything for us to drive our life into ruin. Um, I grew up, again, in this kind of soft fundamentalist culture, and for a number of years when I was younger, I sat under this old-school preacher, and he had all these little, like, old-school preacher lines, and he had this one, sin isn't bad because it's forbidden, it's forbidden because it's bad. Man, there is a lot of truth in that. This is not some arbitrary law out there in an old textbook from the ancient Near East. This is the God, the creator of heaven and earth, of your body, your mind, your sexuality, your heart, who knows you better than you know yourself, 
who knows what it means to be human, who was human better than you know yourself, and who put on display through Jesus, this is how you be human. There's design, there's intent to every facet of who you are, and yet all of it has been warped by sin in your body and in mine, in your heart and in mine. And so we have to trust not our feelings or what's normal or what everybody's doing. Everybody's often quite wrong. It's the great danger for democracy. The majority is not always right. We have to trust Jesus, his mental maps of what's right, what's wrong, what's good, beautiful, and true, and what's the antithesis. We have to live into that. We do not land as a church where our city lands on a number of moral issues, but it's because, listen, it's not because of, you know, we're uptight or puritanical, or maybe we are, but in a good way. It's because we do not believe that sin ever leads to human flourishing. It leads to pleasure. And the New Testament is very honest about that. It's a beautiful line in Hebrews about the passing pleasures of sin. Like, there's never a denial that sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend feels really good. It's pleasurable. It's fun in the moment. But it's passing. And in the end, it's dust in your mouth. It does not lead you to the life that all of us, follower of Jesus or not, or full-on atheists, all of us crave life. All of us want to flourish. All of us want love and happiness and joy and ease in our own body and our mind and a sense of peace and a sense of community and belonging and meaning and purpose. All human beings crave this. We just are confused about what path leads to this. This is why Jesus said, follow my way. I am the way. I am the path. Me, my life, I am the truth. I'm the life that you crave. Come, he said, and follow me. It's a, it's a straight way, he said, not a wide way. Often that's interpreted by hellfire and brimstone preachers to mean very few people are going to heaven, everybody else is going to hell. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think a much better interpretation of, that's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, by the way, is Jesus saying there's a narrow way. There is a very specific way to live, that he just laid out in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, or Luke chapter 6, that if you follow it, if you follow me, it will lead you to life. Not just life as in live forever, but life as in life. And then there's a broad way that's basically just do whatever the heck you want and have fun, go for it, follow the crowd, and it does not lead to the life you crave. In fact, to the exact opposite, to what he calls destruction, to where you self-implode as the cumulative effect of sin starts to grow like a parasite in the life of your soul. All that to say, we stand here even when it's unpopular or it's scary or it's weird because we believe that Jesus is life and his way is the path to life. All that to say, it's tricky to see the ways that we have been colonized by the world. It's much easier in my experience to spot the world in another person than in myself. Um, I'm really good at it, actually, or to spot the world in another culture than in my own, even in, in another part of American culture, in a progressive, millennial-dominant city like Portland. It's easy to spot the world or colonization or whatever you want to call it and say conservative culture or in the South in the form of systemic racism, which is a great thing that I think God has helped highlight over the last few years, or militarism or corporate greed. But often here, we're blind to the ways that we have been just as colonized by, say, a radically new sex ethic 
or hyper-individualism or commitment phobia or hedonism or anti-authoritarianism, whatever it is. So to end, just you still hopefully have your Bible open to 1 John chapter 2. Just we'll end here. Just take one more look with me at John's letter and just reread that with me. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Now that you have this all in your mind, right? If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Again, you have to pick. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires, they pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives. There it is, life forever. Now John here, and we'll end with this, has three temptations to watch out for. The lust of the flesh. We normally think of the word lust as sexual desire, and that only, and it is, but it's actually much more. Here, um, what he means is just the desire of our flesh. Lust at its root is like this ravenous desire for sex or for food or for alcohol or for domination or to look beautiful or to be cool or more followers on social media or instant gratification or money or whatever it is. Two is the lust or the desire of the eyes, um, which is a great like phrase almost for greed and covetousness and restlessness and ambition. One way to define desire is as wanting something that appears to be good for some purpose or pleasure. And then finally, there's the pride of life, which is this autonomy, anti-authoritarian, rebellious, kind of don't tell me what to do, I'm my own person, keep your laws off me, project self. Now John here is harking back to the well-known story of Adam and Eve and the snake and the garden that we started with. Think of that threefold temptation in Genesis 3. I'll quote it for you. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was one, good for food, and two, pleasing to the eye, and three, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Scholars point out it's not a coincidence that these three temptations line up, right? The lust of the flesh is good for food. The lust of the desires of the eyes is pleasing to the eye. The pride of life or desirable for gaining wisdom. John is retelling the same old story because it's the human story. All of us face our Eve moment, our Adam moment. Whether you believe in a literal apple tree, it doesn't say apple, but for Christian culture's sake, I'll let you keep the apple, right? Whether you believe in a fruit or you read it as mythology, however you read it, we've all been in front of that tree a thousand times. We've all been in front of that website a thousand times. We've all been in that apartment a thousand times. We've all been in that moment a thousand times. God says one thing. The voice in your head and the world around you says another. Part of you wants this. Part of you wants that. And you have your moment. And the temptation is usually one of the three or all of the three. It's the lust of the flesh. Ah, there's just this part of my body that wants it. It's the lust of the eyes. Oh, this part of my just ambition, desire, restlessness. Ah, that. If I could just get that, then I'll be happy. If I could just get that experience, that person, that notch, that thing, then I'll... And it's the pride of life. Don't tell me what to do. I know better. It's one of the three or all of the three. These three temptations are at the core of all temptation. And so we always need to keep our eyes wide open because in our city, these three things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are not only normalized, but often they are celebrated. 
Like I think of that line, as long as we're just like really heavy and intense this morning, I think of that line from Jesus to Peter where he's actually rebuking one of his disciples, by the way, not yelling at a pagan, he's rebuking one of his disciples. And he says, the things that are highly esteemed by people are an abomination to God. He doesn't say, he's not saying in context that all things that we think are awesome are abomination. He's saying there are some things that we actually celebrate and clap for and applaud and parade that are just, whoa, 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 from the perspective of God. And for us, this is why we have to fight against the world. And we have to remember that our enemy, when we say that, it's not our neighbor, it's not a politician, it's not a political party, it's not a coworker, that's not our enemy. Our enemy is the world, the flesh, and the devil. So our practice for the week up ahead is all on practicingtheway.org slash fighting. We continue to work under the theory that spiritual disciplines are spiritual warfare, that the practices of Jesus are how we fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. For the world, we have two practices. The first is a review of silence and solitude. where We step out of the world. This was the model set by Jesus to hear from God, truth, wrong, identity, comfort, and then we go back into the world. That's up for the week ahead. And then the second one is an idea audit, which would be well worth your time, even if your community runs out of time before the holidays and before we start Sabbath in January, it would be well worth your time over your Christmas break. To end, um, there is a spiritual discipline or a practice that's not up on the site because it's one that we do every single week. I would argue it's one of, if not the most important in our fight against the world, and it's not on the site because you're doing it right here and right now. It's church. One of the main reasons that we come here week after week at 9 a.m. in our triple jacket and gloves because it's so cold in here with no coffee because they don't let us with the white carpet, all of that is to remind ourselves, because we live in the world all week long. We live in it. It's to remind ourselves, oh, yeah, we're not crazy. <laughs> Do you ever feel that? Is that just me? Do you ever come in here? I'm pretty cynical in my mind. I'm work, Jesus is working it out of me. But do you ever come in here and be like, oh, this is not mass hypnosis? Or if it is, it's really convincing. Um, like it's, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yes, that's not, I'm not crazy. Oh, yes, this is true. This is lie. Oh, yes, this is good. This is not. This is right. It's one of the many reasons that we come here to identify what's the devil and what's Jesus. What's our flesh and what's the spirit of God in us. What's the world and totally normal out and what's the kingdom and its vision for our life. I've been pastoring for upwards of two decades and in my church experience, there's a direct line of causation between church attendance and how colonized or assimilated people are by the world. Even when it's not for bad reasons, even when it's just, I have a newborn, or I have a busy job, or we're really into sports, or we're into hiking and Sundays, or whatever, it's summer. Even when it's not for malicious reasons, it often, we make jokes about how the godliest people sit down front, um, and the ungodly people sit in the back. Um, and I just want to clarify, that's a joke. We're not serious at all. We believe that you people in the back, we're so happy you're here. Welcome. But it is a joke that's like 95% humor, right? There's a tiny little bit of truth in it, and all that it is is that sometimes you can even tell by what time people show up for church in the morning and where they sit, the level of like bought-in commitment they have to follow Jesus. Again, every, like next week, everybody will be at pre-gathering prayer. Everybody's down front. 
do not miss me. I'm not saying at all that if you're in the back, you're not remotely what I'm saying. I'm saying there's something to that. Like when you just prioritize, you say, I'm here. And so I just all that to say, well done. Like I, you give me so much hope for our future. Patrick Deenan, that book that I recommended, is, is very pessimistic for the future of our country. Basically says, like, liberalism's over, and we're just going to, like, go into the Middle Ages now, and it's, it's, it's not a pick-me-up read. But at the very end, it's just, like, the scathing indictment, not just of, like, America since the 60s, of America since the Founding Fathers and the whole vision of, of liberalism. And he gets to the end, and he offers, like, several options going forward, and he quotes another, you know, intellectuals, and one who's recommending that basically we just let 10% of people be rich and put the rest in government housing in Texas with Wi-Fi internet access and just let them watch Netflix. That's, like, actually what some people are saying is the future. And so then he gets to, like, what is the future? And then he literally says, I think the future is small local communities of practice who live outside the wreckage of liberalism in its twilight years, and when liberalism has finally learned its lesson, offer a solution to the future of a better way to be community. I thought, so you mean the church? (laughs) So you mean practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland? And the thing is, where I differ with him, I don't think we're called to live outside the wreckage, but right in the middle of it. That was the Jesus model. So there's no, like, we're buying a compound in eastern Oregon, there's, we're buying a building a mile from here, right? We don't want to live outside the beauty and the tragedy of this city. We want to live right in the middle of it. And we want, what did Jesus say? The Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world.